Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to Chris Waddell's Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, I'm with Bob Babbitt, who is the co-founder of Competitor Magazine, co-founder of Challenge Athletes Foundation, is a member of the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame, a member of the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame, has been a friend for a long time. And Bob, thank you for joining us. Let's talk about CAF. Hi, Chris. Such an honor to be on with you. I mean, anytime I can go on with a guy who's won four gold, five silvers, two bronze, 11 Paralympic medalists, you're a legend, my man. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to chat with you. You know, this is this is just what, what's blowing me away. I mean, I think Challenge Athletes has done so many things. And I've gone to your triathlon in October, which one, which is one of the coolest events. But I didn't realize just the scope of how much you're doing. I sort of realize it anecdotally in some ways in that it seems like every athlete I've talked to has been helped by Challenge Athletes. But in your press release for 2020, for the Tokyo Paralympics, over 60% of Team USA has received financial support from Challenge Athletes Foundation, 60% along their athletic journey. This support has been for over 16 years and totals over $700,000. 128 members of Team USA, plus funding for international athletes. When you started, did you have any idea that, I mean, those are crazy, 60% of the athletes who will compete in Tokyo for the US. I always tell people that things happen for a reason, you know, and and, uh, I, back then I was publishing Competitor Magazine and we were covering running, triathlon, cycling, mountain biking. And this guy comes to Kona named Jim McLaren to do the Ironman. And he had been a football player, Yale, 300 pound offensive lineman in 1985. He's taking acting classes in New York on his motorcycle, going to class, gets hit by a New York city bus, thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival at the hospital. He lives, loses his lower left leg and come back, comes back from that to run a 316 marathon, which is incomprehensible for somebody on a walking leg, not like a sea sprint like you see now. We're talking one step ahead of Captain Hook. I mean, this is what this guy was doing. So then he set his sights on the Ironman Triathlon World Championship. And as you know, I've been involved with the Ironman since the earth was cooling back in 1980 when there was 100 of us at the starting line. And then Jimmy is coming over here. And I got to meet Jimmy at the Ironman. And he goes 1042, which was the top 20% of everybody in the race, you know, missing a freaking leg below the knee. And at that point, he was sponsored by Budweiser. He's traveling the world. He's a one-legged guy that everybody can identify. And eight years later, he's racing at a triathlon Mission Viejo that I was racing the same day. And a van goes through a closed intersection, hits the back of his bike, propels into the pole. A guy who's already in amphitheater becomes a quadriplegic. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. So myself... And I I had Competitor Magazine. Jeffrey Essekow was with the Tinley Company, which was the clothing company that sponsored Jimmy. And and Rick Kozlowski was an event producer with events that Jimmy had done. So the three of us got together and I was like, we need to do something for Jimmy. 
from covering wheelchair athletes through Competitor Magazine, and I think you can relate to this, that when I would interview athletes like yourself or Jim Knob or other athletes and say, what's the worst part about your new life? It was invariably, I'm 30 years old. All of a sudden, here come mom and dad back in my life. I was an independent person. Now I'm not. So our goal was, okay, we want Jimmy to be independent. Let's raise 25000 through a little triathlon. We'll buy Jimmy a van with hand controls to give him independence. That was it. That's what we wanted to do. We raised forty nine. Thought our job was done. Three amputee women come up to us and they're like, we came here because of Jimmy. We have a relay team here to support Jimmy. And he's our hero. But did you know if you get injured, your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair. Nothing to do with sport is covered because insurance companies consider sport a luxury item. <laughs> a luxury item. Not something that'll keep you off medication. Not something to make you feel good about yourself and feel great about your current wherever you are in life. So that's when we got our 5013C and decided if anybody needed a piece of equipment, training, or travel to stay in a game of life through sport, that CF would be there forever and a day. And now it's been 27 years, 28 years actually, $134 million we've raised. We've sent out 35,000 grants to athletes in 73 countries and 104 different sports. I was just checking. It was 103. We just gave out grants in para, para ninja, right? Para ninja. ninja. All right. Para, you know, they're, they're trying to get that into the Paralympics. It's ninja for, uh, for para athletes. What the heck? Why not? So that was, that was it. And who knew that this thing was, you know, we brought in Virginia Tinley, who has um, worked for Jeffrey at uh, the Tinley Clothing Company to be our CEO, executive director person. And we were in a little shack that was condemned. <laughs> the termites had eaten the thing and it was falling apart. And, you know, we just, we didn't really know what we were getting into, but we knew there was people out there who needed our help. And so every year, more and more people have found out about what we do. And it's been, it's, it's been the greatest gift ever to follow people on these journey, this journey and seeing uh, Rudy, who's now 32 years old, we started working with him as a double above knee amputee when he was seven, eight years old. And now he's going for his fifth Paralympics and he's 32 years old. It's, you know, that to me sums up the journey. It, it really does. But Jim's journey as well, right? I mean, you, you went quickly through Jim's journey, 300 yeah. pound offensive lineman who ran a 316 marathon. Yep. I mean, first, like that's, that's crazy. Cause I watched, yes. I remember, being in high school and playing soccer in high school and we're running like six packs around the around the the soccer field and could see the football players and they were running 10 yards like they were running 10 yard sprints you know we're running around the the soccer field numerous numerous times and like what this is totally different that guy turned around and ran a 316 marathon but he ran a 316 marathon after he'd lost the lower part of one of his legs. Exactly. Is, is then the next part. And then that guy went and did a 242 Ironman, which is what, 2.2 2. Oh, yeah, 2 miles? Yeah, 10 hours and 42 minutes. So he's 10 hours and 42 minutes at the Ironman World Championship. The cutoff time is 17 hours. The winners at that point were doing eight and a half, right? So he was you know, two hours behind the best athletes on the planet. But way ahead of you know, the cutoff time of, of 17 hours. 
And what, what's the breakdown there? Three. It's a 2.4 mile swim. Right. Ocean followed by a 112 mile bike ride. And when you're a big guy like Jimmy, that's a big wind block out there. And the wind is howling out there on the Kona coast, especially on the way to Javi. And then it's a marathon. And oh, by the way, it's only 100 degrees at that point of the day when you're starting your marathon at, you know, two, three in the afternoon. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy time. Yeah. And Jimmy just excelled. And it, it, it was watching him reinvent himself. And, and the interesting part, they told him after he was, became a quad, you will never move anything from the neck down, right? You, you will never. And I was over at his place and, you know, with tears in my eyes, as he's getting up out of bed, sitting at a recumbent bike, right? And riding the recumbent, then walking to the, uh, down the hallway with, you know, using the walls and walking, doing repeats up the driveway and then getting into the pool and walking in the pool. And I'm like, yeah, he's not going to move again. Yeah, that's, that ain't happening. They, they never, they underestimated what Jim McLaren was all about. And he, he's the one who said, and I don't know if you ever saw the film Emmanuel's Gift. I did. Young, yeah. So what he said in that film says, the silver lining of my accident, if I don't end up as a quadriplegic, Emmanuel doesn't find out about CAF and change the destiny of the uh, of people with disabilities in his country. I mean, that's that's Jimmy. To uh, that's what Jimmy represented. It was like I know. Says, is this fair? No. Is this something that that I should happen? That should I've had a second accident? Should I've had a first accident? No. But there's nothing I can do about it except make greatness out of it. And that sort of became our mantra. How do you make great out of crap? Well, but he also, he was a human guy as well, where, where he had the second accident and he said, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this again. Like after saying that his first accident was a gift, you know, that both accidents were a gift and an opportunity to give back, to give people, to give to people like Emmanuel, to, to demonstrate what's possible. But that human part of going, I, it was a gift, but I, but I already did it. Right. Do I want to do, I mean, like I've said numerous times, it's a, it's a gift. Would I want to do it again? Would I want to run head first into a pole and be, be paralyzed from, from C2, C3, whatever, whatever it is. I, I don't think, you no. know, I, was, I certainly wouldn't choose that. No. And none of us chose it, but, and, and he went to some of those, those depths, right? Back on that same course is where he had that kind of aha moment of like, you know, the, 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 there, were, there was some cocaine involved, it sounded like, right? Where, where he had Jimmy, some issues, where his triumphs were, where he was then going to his, his biggest depths and try, or, or in some ways, where it was his greatest enlightenment too, where he realized, okay, this is the journey that I have to go through. That's part of it for, for CAF too, right? That, that you're not, you're not creating heroes necessarily. You're helping humans along that human journey, right? You're understanding that there are highs and lows. I mean, Jimmy certainly had his lows. He went off to Hawaii and I thought we'd never see him again. I mean, I thought he was just going to roll off, uh, roll off the pier and, and be gone. And Jimmy had, you know, be, you, you know, as someone who is, when you're in a wheelchair, you're sitting on your bladder, you're sitting on, you have a lot of issues. 
And at some point, there were numerous points where Jimmy's like, I, I don't really want this anymore. This is, yeah, it's, you know, it was, the silver lining was that Emmanuel came over to meet me and he changed the world. But at the same time, each day is a struggle. Each day I'm doing a triathlon just to get out of bed. And, and but, it, but he was, like you said, he was so human, he could share that rather than just put on the happy face. And I remember talking, it was Glenn Hartrick, one of our athletes who's a wheel, who was a age group triathlete, car made an illegal U-turn, he became paralyzed. He'd been doing Ironmans and been doing marathons and he wanted to come back and, 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 and do Ironman again. But he said he realized really early when he was in the hospital bed that if, he, if people came in and he was, you know, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. My life is over. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm paralyzed. He said, I became the barometer for everybody around me. If I was bummed, they were as paralyzed as I was. I needed to be able to say to them, hey, I'm great. Everything's awesome. I'm really looking forward. I'm going for a bike ride. I, I, took, the, I took the wheelchair from the hallway of the hospital and put Strava on it. And I'm, I'm setting course records in the parking lot. That was important for him to do and to know that he had his partner, he had somebody he could confide with and cry with and share those dark moments. But he felt like there was other people that he had a responsibility to his whole group that was following him, that was involved with him to show them that he was okay, that he was gonna be okay and that they can move forward. Even if there were times where he didn't feel okay. And, you know, I, and his, his whole line was, I got to live life through the, through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. I can't, I can't control all that. And it was, that, that always made an impact on me. It's an interesting situation, and I think it's empowering. I mean, for the individual, you're the one lying there in the hospital bed, and people come in to support you. And, hey, all right, it's all going to be okay. And, and you can see the look of anguish, the look of worry on their face, and it, and it totally flips it where you're the one, yeah, and you don't know what's going on. But you're like, no, no, it's, it's going to be okay. And it's, but it's back to, in some ways, what Jim was talking about uh, in this sense of the potential isolation and the potential immobility after, after breaking his neck the, and, and the pain, right? The right. being in constant pain and worrying about these things. But he, he did something that was kind of interesting. I mean, I remember seeing him at one of your events. And I don't know if I had met him when prior to his, his accident uh, that made him a quadriplegic. I don't, I, I remember seeing him on television, but I don't know if I'd remembered him, but he started studying, right. And, and studying the wounded man, yes. you know, like, you know, the Bible and the classics and Oedipus and Job and, and all of these things. And, and, and trying to answer that question for himself, which in a lot of ways is not necessarily just his question, is it? I mean, it's the question that, that sort of unifies all of us. We're all wounded on some level, right? Some level. You know, yeah, no question. Whether it's perception or not. And, and, and that, that willingness to go into that depth, that willingness to, to try to answer, in a lot of ways, life's questions is some of what brought challenge athletes into into the depth of of what it is it's not just 
cookie cutter. It's bringing people in and, and dealing with the person. And probably like you're talking about, not necessarily just the, the individual who's receiving a prosthetic or a wheelchair or whatever it is, but the family. The family's essential. Everybody around, you you think about Rudy. I mean, his mom was the one who, when you know, Rudy's double above knee, well, he was, they did 15 surgeries to try to save his legs. He had a flap of skin behind both knees. It was called pterygium syndrome. And he had cleft liver pallets. And uh, so when he had his leg, when, when he finally, at the age of five or six, had his legs amputated, he, it was his decision, right? His parents tried to save the legs because they didn't want him to come back when he was 20 years old and say, well, why didn't you even try to save my legs? So they tried it, 15 operations, didn't work. And finally, he's like, cut these things off. And they got him into swimming. And so mom was the one, because when they would go see the prosthetist, the guy would be like, listen, um, you know, you're a double above knee amputee. You'll never really walk. You'll never run. You'll be in a wheelchair, right? And mom would keep calling and going, you know, uh, the prosthetist is Michael Davidson. Michael or Mr. Davidson, when will Rudy run? And he would reiterate, you know, he's, he's basically on stilts. Uh, he will never run. He'll be in a wheelchair or he'll be in a walker, period. So finally, Michael tells me this, right? He says, and finally, I, rather than talking to her on the phone, I said, could please come in so I can tell you this in person. So Michael walks into the waiting room and Rudy is doing a handstand on the walker. And Michael goes, at that point, he goes, if this kid wants to learn how to run, I better figure it out. And that changed, seriously, that was the moment that changed everything. At that point, no double above knee amputees had ever run, ever run a step. And so Michael and said, so Rudy became my collaborator. I'm trying to figure out how to make legs for this kid that won't break, that he can run and skateboard and be a kid. It wasn't about running. It was like, how can I help this kid be? So he's, he says, um, you know, Rudy's seven years old, eight years old, and he'd come in after shattering another set of legs, jumping off a wall or jumping off a roof, whatever the heck he was doing, skateboarding. And he said, one day Rudy comes in and he had cracked the socket, right? And he's like, so Rudy, what happened? He says, well, I was skateboarding and I was trying to jump this curb. And so Michael says, I'm holding the socket and I turn it upside down and all these Tootsie Rolls fall out. And I realize that my collaborator's an eight-year-old kid and he's helping me change the world here. But that was the thing is the two of them were on a mission because it wasn't just about Rudy. It was about that next kid. So when Rudy and I ran a mile together as part of the San Diego Marathon in 19 minutes with his uh, Lego looking like legs, right? With all the different colors and all the titanium, 19 minutes. Well, eventually he got to sub six minutes for the mile. And all these other kids that you see now who are running as double above knee amputees are because of Rudy and Michael. Michael is, is Rudy's prosthetist to this day. They still work together. And it's, you know, Michael was the one who, you know, and because of mom, mom was the one who said, hey, my kid needs to run and you better figure it out. And he did. And that, that changed everything. I mean, people forget that, you know, listen, you're, you're, you're very early in the, in the process of somebody being injured and coming back and being an athlete, 
right? That that's if that's been hasn't been happening for 50 years. That's what 25, 30 years, maybe. Yeah. So this is all you guys are all pioneers. We're all pioneers in figuring out how do we take how do we figure out how to uh, get back in the sport and get back in the life? How can we develop the equipment that needs to be there to make that happen? So it's 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 been a fun journey watching all this. And what a, what an amazing gift, right? I mean, you look at Rudy and you look at what he had to go through. And he's a kid who who just wants to play and just wants to have fun and go 100 miles an hour. And and he and luckily he has a prosthetist who's willing to help him yep. in that and and willing to help him because one the the legs are expensive the king keeps breaking them yes i used to get in trouble for breaking my braces when i was a kid right you know the doctors how can we keep this kid from breaking my parents like he's a kid this is what happens they're gonna but but the prosthetics are a whole whole different story than the braces that you have on your teeth right his mom was so responsible for that because what she did this is you weren't taking videos with your iPhone back then. You were had a video camera, and they they were they lived in a in a trailer, right? They uh, dad was a cook at a truck stop. It's not like they were a family of means. So Rudy's standing at this tetherball court behind the house, and mom's got her beta cam or whatever the heck it is, and she's filming Rudy and Rudy's legs that he got were state issued. They were held together with bungee cords, right? Seriously, they were bungee corded. And then, then strapped leather straps onto his stumps. So he's holding this leg, and his mom is making this video to send to the high-end prosthetic makers to basically say, "Help me." And so Rudy's going, "Could you please help me and give me better legs? These are a piece of crap." And he throws it on the ground. And, and we still have that video. But that's what mom did, sending this off to these, you know, multi-million dollar prosthetic companies and saying, I need legs for my kid. And luckily, between Michael Davidson and the prosthetic companies, they were providing him because they understood that he was sort of NASCAR. He was testing out the products that were going to help the next generation. So think about this. So Rudy was, you know, getting, finally, he was the only one getting legs. And so back in the day, Doctors would tell a kid or a parent, your son or daughter is three years old. They're a double above knee amputee or a double below knee amputee. It makes no sense to get them legs now because they're just going to outgrow them and they're $15,000 a piece. So you should wait till your child is 14 and stops growing. Okay. So imagine your first 14 years of PE and you're running around with two by fours on your attached to your knee, right? You are the last kid picked. Your self image is I am a piece of crap. I am not an athlete. Uh, a sport is not part of my life. And what, I, what I'm really proud of through CAF, it became, hey, you're three years old and you need prosthetics, get them now, right? Two years from now, you need another set, get them now. Our partner, Oser, they've been amazing because the, it's way more than just a piece of equipment. It's what between your ears, it's what you're feeling about yourself, your comfort, how comfortable you are in your own skin, right? And also just the way the other kids look at you. When, when Rudy started swimming, his whole goal was to beat a kid with legs. He says, I, I want to beat a kid with legs. 
And he remembers, he can tell you the time of day, where it was to the second when he was swimming and touched the wall and the kid on his right touched just after him. And all this kid's friends were standing above on this pool deck going, you lost to no leg boy, <laughs> right? And Rudy was going, I want more of this. This is what I want. I want no leg boy to dominate these guys. No leg boy, RoboCop, all that type of stuff. Well, when you got street cred because you're beating people, all of a sudden that other, the, the bullying and all the rest of that crap goes away. And that's what the byproduct that we don't quite understand is, is that, that you are a kid and not just a kid, but you're a kid like everybody else. You're not the last one picked. Maybe you're the first one picked because you're faster than everybody else. And that's like going to the triathlon, you see, because Rudy at one point was the only kid. Only. And now you see so many kids with their prosthetic legs, with these tiny little prosthetic legs. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like the equivalent of like baby shoes kind of yes. thing, practically, right? Where, but, but they're legs that fit them and you see the kids running and, and, you know, I, I remember having the message in the hospital after my accident was that you're effectively fragile, right? Like, you know, you're going to skin breakdowns. This is, this is what's going to happen to you. Your skin's going to break down. And it's like, so don't do anything. Make sure you do your pressure. Put you in a bubble, put your kid in a bubble, right. And, and hold on to him. So, well, I think that's another thing. If you look at people from my generation, if you were an amputee, you never wore shorts, you wore long pants, you hid everything. Uh, and one of my favorites, uh, we were doing our, our uh, San Diego Triathlon Challenge. Two-time Ironman world champion, Chris McCormick, uh, was a guy I've been trying to get there for years to come do it. He came to the event, and as you know, there's 150 challenged athletes there. There's legs lying everywhere. There's wheelchairs everywhere. For that one weekend a year, kids who live in Omaha, Nebraska, and are the only kid in a wheelchair, the only kid who's an amputee, they're with kindred spirits. All of a sudden, they're not a freak. They're like everybody else. I had a mom tell me that. She says, for 363 days a year, my son feels like he's, you know, he's, he's a freak. He comes here, and he's like everybody else. And we forget how important that is. So Maka comes to do the triathlon. And he says, listen, this was a life-altering experience for me. I'm coming back next year, and I'm going to bring my two little girls. They need to see this. They need to meet these kids. So the following year, Maca comes and does the bike ride down the coast. And the Million Dollar Challenge bike ride finishes at La Jolla Shores Park. We've got all of our kids there who are going to be putting medals on all the 120 riders, right? Greeting them from their 620-mile journey. And, you know, Chris is part of that group. So his wife is there with her two little kids. And we've got hurdles set up and tires. And all the kids are just playing, right? Little, little games while waiting for, you know, the riders come down. And Chris McCormick's wife says to one of her daughters, says, honey, why don't you go play with the other kids? And to show you how the world has changed, her daughter goes, I can't play with them. I don't have a magic leg like they do, <laughs> right? We're talking about the kids got Scooby-Doo on his legs. He's got, he's got Spider-Man. He's got Superman embossed in his legs. Kids are jealous going, I want that. And I remember interviewing this woman, a uh, 17-year-old girl in Philadelphia and wearing a skirt and had her prosthetic leg. And I said, tell me about your prosthetic leg. She goes, my prosthetic leg makes me different in a good way. It makes me stand out. And if, if we've had any 
uh, if we've had any impact on that, on people feeling good about themselves and, and saying something like that, that this makes me different in a good way, then that, the, the journey has been worth it no matter what. But that to me is really, really the essence of it, how good you feel about yourself because you're, you're different in a good way. There's nothing, you, you stand out. And if you look at every commercial during the, period, during the Olympics, you saw Scout Bassett and you saw Jessica Long and you saw athletes that stand out. Our athletes stand out. Chris Waddell stands out. That's, that's important. Well, it's part of the human condition, I think. And the other part of it is that, I mean, it's your mission, right? That, that removing the barriers to an active lifestyle Yes, and basically helping helping the individual through that that or the active lifestyle helping that individual to live as fully as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing here, but but I mean that's that's what we that's what we all hope for right. in a lot of ways, right? How did this how did this go from the raising money for Jim's van? to becoming as big as it is. I mean, you've got Rudy over your, over your right shoulder and you have Bill Walton over yep. your left shoulder who, who has to be one of the biggest you know, heroes of, of CAF and one of the biggest yep. uh, uh, proponents of it, right? So a lot of things happened that were, you know, one was because of Scott Tinley, two-time Ironman world champion. He had met Robin Williams and Robin, loved riding his bike and loved being with the pro athletes. And he came down originally to do the Malibu triathlon with Rudy swimming and, and Robin riding a bike and Scott Tinley doing the run. They were team Braveheart. Rudy used to carry a little business card. A Braveheart is a powerful weapon. That was his mantra. Right? So that group, those, that trio came to our San Diego triathlon challenge 11 times. They were a, a trio at our event. Well, so now media that might have just ignored this silly little triathlon to raise money to buy prosthetics, wheelchairs, and hand cycles, they have a sense that a Oscar award-winning actor and comedian, Robin Williams, is going to be at this park. So every media crew on the planet is at La Jolla Cove. And my, my, favorite, my favorite Robin story from those is one, Robin loved riding a bike because he could be a little invisible. When you're on a bike, you're just another, another geek in Lycra. All right, so he, oh, two things. So Rudy is getting honored up at Nike with what they call the Casey Martin Award. But Casey Martin was the golfer who had to go to court to be able to use a golf cart. And he's a Nike athlete. And every year they give out an award for people who are inspirational to the disabled. And Rudy was receiving this award, which came as a $25,000 um, uh, $25, grant from, from Nike that goes to Rudy. So Casey Martin gets up to present the award. And he goes, listen, it's named the Casey Martin Award. So I'd sort of like to give it out. But we have a, a gentleman who performed last night in New York and he flew all night so he could be here to present this award to Rudy. Robin comes bounding on the stage and he goes, listen, people keep telling me that Rudy's a challenged athlete. To me, a challenged athlete, some 300 pound guy trying to squeeze into a pair of Lycra. That's a, that's a challenged athlete. Rudy isn't a challenged athlete. So, and then he brought Rudy on Oprah with him, right? Then Rudy was on the Disney Channel. Then every time at Standing a Triathlon Challenge, the weather guy is there 
And why is the weather guy there? To do the update on the weather from La Jolla Cove? Because Robin Williams is there. So he, he comes up and goes, hey, um, will Robin do a soundbite? And you know, it's like, Robin, are you okay doing a little interview? And he goes, is it live? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's live. It's live? Yeah, I'll do it. So putting a live microphone in front of Robin Williams is like putting, lion, or putting a raw meat in front of a lion. So here's Robin, and the, the reporter goes, you know, Mr. Williams, how are you going to feel at the end of this 56-mile bike ride? He's like, is, it, is this live? Yeah, yeah. You know how I'm going to feel? I'm going to feel like there's a river of sweat like Niagara Falls running down the crack of my ass. It's like, wait, is this live? Oh, thank you. <laughs> and he walks away high-fiving everybody. But that was Robin. And Robin led to one year we had Robin Williams, Will Ferrell, Jim Carrey, and David James Elliott from Jack. Right? As, as one of the agents said, we are one star away from a nervous breakdown. But all these celebrities were out there, and Rob and Will Ferrell and Jim Carrey ran a 133 half marathon on a hilly course. And Robin did the 56 mile bike ride. And, you know, totally, total cred, street cred. And we actually honored Will at my endurance awards, my competitor endurance awards for, you know, for running that half marathon and running a 356 at the Boston Marathon. So, you know, it was, it was great for everybody. The athletes got to those, the celebrities got to meet our athletes and understand why they were important. And Robin was so motivated by Rudy and all of our athletes. So it's, you know, that, all of that was huge. And then Emmanuel's gift, having Oprah narrate the film, and Jim McLaren and Emmanuel received the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, right? And you had Matthew Perry hosting the ESPYs, introducing Oprah, who introduces a 13-minute feature on Jim and Emmanuel narrated by Kiefer Sutherland. Then it's Emmanuel and Jim and Oprah hugging at center stage and Le LeBron James and Bill Walton and everybody in tears with a standing ovation. There was a lot of special moments that led to a higher profile for CAF and people finding out what we did. And at the end of the day, all of that helped to create what we have today. What was, what was Robin's initial connection with Rudy? Like, why did, why did he get so emotionally involved with CAF as a result of Rudy? Well, it, 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 Originally, Robin, the escape from Alcatraz triathlon up in the mm -hmm. Bay Area, went right by his house. So he met Wendy Ingram and Scott Tinley and a lot of the pro athletes, and nothing made Robin happier than to be cutting up with those athletes. He just loved being with those athletes. And, you know, Scott was coming down to do, Scott was going up from San Diego to do the Malibu triathlon which was really, you know, one of the first events that focused on stars and had Tom Cruise and Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer Lopez. And so Robin was on a team with Rudy and with, with uh, Scott Tinley. And that became Team Braveheart that eventually, that for the following year came to San Diego Triathlon Challenge. And so that, that photo of Rudy coming out of the water and on all fours going over and tagging Robin that, you know, every media outlet, not just on the West Coast, but all over the country, that was a very special moment. Uh, we call that the hot corner. And it was a hot corner for a reason. It was the, you know, one of the, one of the most beloved actors and comedians and Rudy Garcia Tolson, who was a star in his own right at that point. 
Well, and, and I mean, what it sounds like is that, that Robin just sees the humanity in this, right? Just sees, sees Rudy, sees Rudy as this little kid who's had to struggle through, but also who just, funny enough, becomes a hero to Robin right. no in question. a lot of ways. No question. He, he talked about him as a Superman, you know, Rudy's Superman. He, he can do anything. And they began, and actually, it's funny, it's like Robin, I'm like, Robin, you know, Rudy really is, is just so excited to be your friend. He goes, Rudy, Rudy only likes me because I'm his video game pimp. I get him all the new releases. That's the only reason he hangs out with me. <laughs> Rudy did say something to that effect that he got a, a gigantic box of video games from Robin and, and he was all hooked up, but but I would imagine there was a little bit more, but it's interesting to see those kinds of stars, right? These people that you see on television that have so much distance mm -hmm. from the rest of us who then come and say, no, this is the important part. What this, this kid Rudy thing. is doing is the important part. And it's, so when you first did that triathlon as a fundraiser, how many, how many people did you have? Cause it's, it's huge. God, we raised 49 K. We probably had, I don't know, 35 to 50 people there something like that. And it was, it wasn't very big. Um, and it was just, in fact, I don't even, to be honest, I don't know if we had any permits when we did it. Um, we, we must have permits to do the lawyer code, but the bike ride, we never blocked off any roads. So it was just, you know, you ride up the coast and come back and then you go for a run and come back and then we'll barbecue. So it was, it was pretty casual those first number of years. And then it just, over time, it got bigger and bigger. It's funny because people who came the first couple of years and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, the crowds are so big, they can't really see what's happening on a main stage. We better get a jumbotron. So we get a jumbotron. So now people can see. So now there's a jumbotron and, oh, we need, if we have a jumbotron, we've got to have a VIP area for people to, be able to see the jumbotron from from certain areas next to the finish line so it just you know started just started over time things just got bigger and bigger and bigger and raising more and more dollars and and by creating it by robin bringing attention to it people realized the need people saw that there were a lot of athletes who they needed a hand cycle they needed a racing chair they needed prosthetic legs all of that became more and more our athletes became more visible and when they become more visible, their need becomes more visible. That's what's so cool about Paralympics is all of a sudden, you know, just like, you know, we had London and then we had Rio. And I think, you know, Tokyo is, is going to be great because there's going to be way more coverage than we've ever had before. And some of these athletes are just like we saw in the Olympics. They're going to become household names coming out, out of the Paralympics. Which was not the case that long ago. I mean, yeah. it's when, yeah. when I was competing, I mean, even London, you talk it, about it as a transformational time, but still in the U.S., I think we had four hours of coverage. Exactly. They, of it, the Paralympics it was embarrassing what was going on because we were watching it in London. We were in London and we're like, oh, my God, what they're doing in Channel 4, what they did over there, which is so great, is before each event, they'd have a, a little diagram showing what the challenge was that the person was dealing with, because, you know, this is confusing stuff. You took classification. Especially and, swimming. Right. Oh, oh, swimming, track and field, all of that is just, it's crazy. You just can't figure it out. But they did a great job because I would watch Rudy swim and there's like Rudy and he's missing both legs. And there's a guy missing an arm. And there's a guy with all four limbs. And then you're like, you're okay, fill me in on who's a guy on the end there with all four limbs. And he looks like he's 35. And <laughs> who are these people? 
but it it was just very confusing there for a long time. I think it's gotten better, but it's it's still confusing with all the classifications. No, it's so important to be able to tell that story. But then also, I mean, you're talking about London, where they they went one step further in telling the story. Right? They had a they had a stand up comic at the end of the night at the end of yes. the broadcast because I mean like. Like you, I mean, I grew up with like MASH, right? And it yeah. was kind of, this is war. And if, but if you can laugh, then we're okay. Then we're sane, right? Then we're, exactly. and, and I think that that was part of it, that there was so much distance in the Paralympics. One, because you didn't get a chance to see it. And two, if you did get a chance to see it, it had to be strictly this, well, this is inspirational. This is, this is, this is so great. This is, this is somebody overcoming, which to me, Overcoming is one of those things that reinforces the barrier mm-hmm. in between, reinforces the distance. Oh, you've overcome, you've overcome your disability. It's like, no, no, I'll I'll wake up tomorrow and yeah. I'm gonna be in a right. wheelchair. I, right. I know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What you're doing is you're challenging yourself. You're, you're challenging yourself in the course. Right. We yes, you're competing with the other people, but can I be faster than I was yesterday? Can I jump higher than I did before? Right. All of that, to me, that's what the, the purity of sport, and we chatted about it before we went on, the, the thing that hit me the most, and this wasn't even Paralympics, it was Ironman. And it took a long time. So when Ironman in 94, a guy named Dr. John Franks in a wheelchair mm-hmm. wanted to come to Ironman. And their feeling back then was, if we have a person who swims, uses a hand cycle and runs and uses a racing chair, well, if someone says they can't swim, can they use a windsurfer? Can they use a paddleboard? Are we opening up Pandora's box? And it was like, no, let's just, you come up with swim, same t- cutoff times for the swim, the bike, the run, hand cycle, long seat on the hand cycle and racing chair for the run. And that's what the rules are. So in 94, John Franks came over and he didn't make the cutoff time for the bike. In 95, a guy named John McClain came over and he didn't make the bike cutoff time as well. So then people start saying, well, maybe we got to change the cutoff times. Like, no, level playing field. That's what everybody wants, level playing field. Those hand cycles were 30 pounds. They had to get lighter, figure it out. So then in uh, 90, 90, 94, 95, 96, John comes again and he misses a cutoff time again. But they wanted to see if someone could actually do the whole race. And as you and I both know, they weren't going to have a problem doing the, the marathon Right. In you know two hours, you know, average average person's going five. So John goes off and does the marathon. He finishes. John McClain, this is right. John McClain, yes, gets under all the cutoff times, and they put a medal around his neck. And his brother goes, "You need to take that off right now. You didn't make the bike cutoff time. You can't keep that." So in '97, he came back and he made off the cutoff time. And now we're going okay. Now we're we're moving forward. Well, then '98. Carlos Maleta, Navy SEAL, shot in the back in Panama, paralyzed and waist down. David Bailey, motocross world champion, making 750K a year as the top supercross rider in the world. He gets paralyzed, jumping something that uh, probably shouldn't have been jumped. And the two of them come over in 98. And now it's the Navy SEAL against the motocross star. This is a movie waiting to be made, right? And everybody knew Carlos and everybody knew David. And so this this uh you looked at these two guys and it became less about the disability in the wheelchair and came down to these two guys want to kill each other and to win this race they will do whatever it takes and carlos that year went 1055 
which the year before we were worried people could make the cutoff time. 1055 would have won the first two Ironman races overall, right? 78 and 79. He would have won the race. So now that went away with, can we make a cutoff time? It was like, now it's time to race. So 99, Carlos wins again. We come over to 2000 and I say to Carlos two days before, I'm like, Carlos, I just think it's going to be a race this year. And he goes, you can think that, Bob, it's going to be over early. We're going to pay and save Hill, the first hill in the course. He's going to get dropped so bad. And I'm like, wow. So anyways, that's exactly what happened. Okay, they come out of the water. David's ahead. Carlos goes by him like a moped, heads out to the turnaround at a place called Javi. And then David, uh, David catches him. And at that point, they're like six miles from the finish of the bike and David flats. And Carlos, being a good sport, hangs with him for a little bit, but not too long. Then he takes off and he's got about a five minute lead. And they're coming through town and Carlos has a five minute lead and David's wife and mom, and it's his mom's birthday. They're standing on the side of the road and they're giving him the golf clap. They're basically, good try, honey. It was great that you tried to beat him again, but you got your butt kicked. And, and David had spent his whole winter, 150 mile rides on his hand cycle. As he said, you know, Bob, if I cramp out there, it's not like I can, get, I can get out of a chair and go call somebody. I'm stuck. And he get back to the house and he passed, wife would find him passed out on the floor of the bathroom, pictures of Carlos Malata around the house. He wanted this guy, right? And so, they're heading out towards what's called the natural energy loop. It's a four mile loop. It's 16 miles into the marathon. You drop down and when you come out, it's 10K to go. And in the week leading in, like three days before the race, David was out there in his racing chair. It's hundred degrees. He's poised, poised above the, the, the natural energy lab. Doesn't really wanna do that four miles right now. It's 90 some degrees, and, but he knows, you know what? It's going to come down to this. I need to know every crack, every pebble on this in this natural energy lab. He goes down and does it. So on race day, the lead now is two minutes when they get the natural energy lab. They go down into the natural energy lab. They come out. David is side by side with Carlos. And you can see the tears. You can see the tears. And we have a six-foot photo of David Bailey in full flight. You know, and the, the quote is, you know, like, why walk when you can fly? And he just had passed Carlos, his full extension. He's flying in his racing chair. He gets to the finish and wins, right? We've had this, this uh, trio of races, and he has finally beaten Carlos Malay. And David, I'm like, David, you want to get a massage? And he's like, no, no, I need to wait for Carlos. Carlos comes in, and they both are wearing these grimy gloves that wheelchair racers wear. They touch gloves, and then they embrace. And I see David say something to Carlos. And as, we, as they're rolling away, I say, Carlos, what did he say? And he said, he said, thank you. And I was like, what? He said, that's what I said. He goes, thank you for pushing me to a level I wouldn't have reached on my own. And to me, what, that was the epitome of what sport's all about. It wasn't about the disability. It wasn't about the chair. It was two great athletes who wanted to kick the other guy's ass. And that's what makes, to me, what makes the Paralympics so great. You know that there's athletes right now, Justin Fongsavah, the, the javelin thrower, sure. he knows everybody else who's going to be a threat to him. It's not like he's going over there to pick up Chotsky's, you know, from Japan. He's going over there because he's a world record holder and he wants to win a gold medal. And he knows the guy from the Ukraine and the guy from Russia and the guy from Czechoslovakia. He knows how far they throw and he wants the gold medal and he does not want them to get it. Now, they push each other to be great, but that's what I love about sport. 
he wants to be better than them. That's what it's about. So that's the purity of it, that it's yeah, inspiration, motivation, that's all there. But at the same time, the purest part of sport is competition. And these guys want to be the best. You wanted to be the best. You know, look at, you don't come away with, you know, with, with four golds, five silvers and two bronze by, you know, by going, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go out for a little training on the, on the slopes today. No, you were going, you were pushing it as hard as you could. You were doing the weights. You were doing everything you needed to do to be the best you could be. And that's, that's what we're seeing in Tokyo. These guys have had an extra year. People are going to be flying. It's going to be really interesting. And what's also interesting about this too, I mean, you talk about Carlos and you talk about David too, right? That, that people are going to choose sides. Absolutely. I, I'm for team Carlos. I'm for, for team Bailey, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, no, no, I want the underdog. I want the guy who hasn't won. I want him to win. This other guy's won the whole time. He can't win again, you know? And, and that to me is the evolution of, of disabled sport of the Paralympics is, yep. is when you can say, yeah, it's okay. If somebody, if somebody wins, if I root for somebody, I'm not rooting for the whole movement, but you also, you talk about marathons, you talk about Ironman. Yep. There's some dark moments out there. There are those oh, yeah. moments where you just don't know if you can continue. And yeah. back to Jim McLaren, where he was talking about that in terms of his recovery, right? That, that his recovery in those dark moments was partially remembering those marathons, remembering those times drawing on him. in yep. the Ironman. Ironman, yeah, drawing on the Ironman, he knew. And to but, me, you know, just like with, if you look at our, it, it, any sport, rivalries, right? You know, Michael Jordan and the Detroit Pistons, uh, you, you have rivalries. And if you look at our endurance sports, when you had Dave Scott and Mark Allen and Paul Henry Frazier and Aaron Baker, they couldn't like each other. And, and going back to wheelchair racing, Jim Knob was an Olympic trials pole vaulter, who you know, and Jimmy got into wheelchair racing and he was like, how do I make this a sport? You know, no parent is out there going, boy, I hope my kid grows up to be a wheelchair racer there right and he goes but i want to figure out how to make this a sport and he talked to dwight stones from nbc and said i need to make this a sport and he goes if you want to make it a sport jimmy someone has to wear a black hat and someone has to wear a white hat you've got to create rivalries and so jimmy was like i'll wear the dalmatian suit i'll be the i'll wear the black hat i'll go to the papers and go i just won this race overall where's my prize money and why should it go to the runners i was on the same course you know and who's this Craig Blanchett guy? He's got no legs. He's, he's, he's got an advantage on me. You know, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, he would talk smack because he knew we understand rivalries. We might not understand wheelchair racing or hand cycling or the paratriathlon, but we do understand two people who don't like each other, who want the same prize. That's what the, the beauty of sport is, is you push each other to be great. You hug each other afterwards. but you didn't go there to get the silver. You know, if you're going to be on the podium, you don't really want to be looking up at anybody. Right? You would rather be looking down on people. So, you know, to me, it, it, that's, that's what it comes down to is we want rivalries. And that's what happened with David and Carlos. People were riding and running going, go David, go Carlos. They knew who those guys were, right? They weren't just two guys in wheelchairs. They were the stars of the race, just like Dave Scott and Mark Allen were. Well, and that's the cool thing. And then you also see that now 60% of the 
of, of the Paralympians that you guys challenge athletes has, has helped 60% of these athletes, which, you know, even some of the athletes that you guys have helped, like, like a Famita Ayambeku yep. was saying that, that it took her years to wear shorts, to yep. wear a skirt. Yep. Uh, a Beatrice Hatz, same kind of thing. She was 17 years old before right. she, before she would wear shorts in public. Right. And, and this is, this is sort of demystifying it, right. That, Oh, you don't have to wear a cosmetic, something cosmetic on your prosthetic to make it look like it's right. another leg. It's like, no, this is what it is. And if you take a look at it, it's pretty darn cool too, because it's designed for, performance yes how has it evolved for you in the time from the beginning of thinking okay we're going to get jim mclaren a van to now 2021 because you've seen this arc and you know and there were it was an interesting time prior to this as well right like the the time of like you know wheelchair basketball and 50 pound hospital wheelchairs and racing and 50 pound yep. hospital wheelchairs and, and souping up those things, you know, going into your garage and go, Oh, we can dump the upholstery. We can add some different tires. We can, you know, do whatever. How have you seen that arc and what do you see in this next generation of athletes? You know, what's fascinating to me is what I've seen, obviously is, is what OSER has done with prosthetic legs. is just unbelievable. And then in conjunction with Nike, the two of them work together to create this sole that goes on the bottom of the running. If you think about it, you've got a carbon fiber leg. And if you're running on a carbon fiber, you're going to wear that out. Well, with the, you know, the sole that Nike created that originally was called the Sarah sole because Sarah Reinertsen helped develop it. That sole had, you could have spikes on it. You can have treads on it to run off-road or run on-road. So it's one, it makes the prosthetic last so much longer. Um, but then the, you know, the whole thing with the fit is that's what people understand. It's like, well, why does that thing cost $15,000? Because it's made specifically to you. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that it's one thing for someone to go on vacation and gain a pound or two. But when you have a prosthetic leg and your leg volume changes, all of a sudden your leg doesn't fit. All of a sudden your leg can come off. All of a sudden, you know, or it's too tight. Or Or you can't get it on. Yeah. You can't get it on. So Athletes have to be so cognizant of, of what taking what they eat, what they drink, because that fit is, is essential. And the same with you know a sled hockey sled, having a sled hockey sled that's not a borrowed sled hockey sled, but something that is built specifically for you. One of the stories that you love, we're working right now with a young man who's Landis Sims is a quadruple amputee baseball player. He's missing both hands and both legs, one below and one above. And Love baseball from the very beginning, like seven years old. When he was seven, a buddy of mine named Eric Cochran, who's a videographer for both um, Discovery Channel, shoots Shark Week, he shoots National Geographic Adventure. He would happen to be at a veteran softball game and sees this chubby seven-year-old kid missing both hands and both legs talking smack to the military guys. He's like batting and going, dude, can't you put it over the plate? What's wrong with you? And this was this kid, Landis Sims from Indiana. And, you know, I talking to Eric, he said, I'm just going to film this kid. There's something here. I'm just going to get, so he's been filming him for seven years. And, you know, so the, what ended up happening is we took him to the MLB network. And so 
his prosthetist realized that he was batting with his two stumps like this, right? So this prosthetist came up with a socket to go on the bat so he could put his stump in so he could extend his arms. So what's happening when we talk about technology, every single day as, as we go outside of the realm of wheelchair racing, hand cycle racing, to mainstream sports, football, basketball, baseball, these prosthetists are having to figure out how do I make a leg that doesn't just go straight, but can cut side to side? And how do I come up with a socket that goes on the bat? So, you know, Landis throws and catches with his glove. And his quest became to make his high school baseball team, which he did as a quadruple amputee. So every single day with the help of technology, things are changing. And, and you'll love this. When Landis was just out here in San Diego, he ended up being invited to the Titleist Performance Institute. And Titleist works with golfers and they work with baseball players. And they have electrodes and all this different stuff hooked up to this kid. And he realized that I shouldn't be batting lefty. I should be batting righty. And, you know, he's hitting well lefty. Now he's hitting the crap out of the ball righty. But as, as these trainers and physiologists start looking at our athletes and as our athletes start moving into more you know, CrossFit and all the mainstream sports that are out there, baseball, football, basketball, equipment has to be adapted. Right. And, you know, we were at the TPI at the Titleist Performance Institute and the trainer there for Titleist and the, you know, the scientist is on the phone with the prosthetist back in Chicago talking about how do we adapt the legs so that he can get more, you know, more movement side to side. How do we do this? So we're in the evolution stage. Every single day we are learning more and more. I mean, you saw how much the hand cycles changed and racing chairs changed and wheelchair basketball chairs changed. We're just at the beginning. There's going to be so much more. And that's what makes it so exciting. Just seeing what sports our guys are going to be doing next. Where do you see it going? I mean, you've seen it come so far, but yep. yet we're still at the beginning. Where do you see it going? And, and what do you see the role of challenge athletes continuing to be as it moves forward? Well, I think our role is, is going to, our mission is to help people get the equipment, training, travel, et cetera, to stay in the game of life through sport. And that won't change. Um, we want to make sure that we're there to, if somebody says, I want to play baseball or I want to play basketball. I want to play high school basketball and I'm missing an arm. I want to play, I want to play hockey or stand-up hockey. How do I do that? That's, you know, they come to us with, I want to do this. And we come back with, this is how we think we can help. So to me, our, our job is, is never ending. We, we need to help these athletes be athletes and help them achieve their dreams. And you know, to me, this right now, we're a year late, but the Paralympics is the culmination of this last, you know, last four years of these athletes who have sat, sacrificed so much, and especially during the COVID times, to get their workouts in, to eat healthy, to do whatever they could do to get to the games. It's uh it's a pretty exciting time. And you, you've helped world champions. I mean, you're talking about Carlos Molina. You're talking about David Bailey. Uh, we mentioned Famita, you know, people who are, are at the top of their sport and Rudy. But it's not necessarily just about the people who are at the top of their sport as well, yeah. right? That's the tip of the So Rudy was a pipe piper. He was one whose parents, this is actually the perfect story. So Jake Frank, 
double above knee amputee from South Dakota, Haven, South Dakota. And he, his mom, a lot of times it's a mom, mom had video of Rudy from the Disney Channel running. And, you know, Jake was in a wheelchair. And mom would take this video that she had and take it to, you know, to the prosthetist and say, I want this for, for Jake. And they'd be like, lady, I don't know what the hell this kid's doing, but there's no way. He's a double above knee amputee. He's on stilts. He'll never run. So anyways, this visiting prosthetist comes to South Dakota named Peter Davidson. And the mom shows him the video and goes, I want this for Jake. And he goes, no problem. Rudy's prosthetist is my brother. And three days later, Rudy's on the pool deck with Jake. And then we had Robin Williams present Jake with a set of running legs. And the other side of that is here's dad, whose kid has been in a wheelchair his whole life. And dad, you know, so much of a relationship with the father and son is playing catch, tag, all that type of stuff. Not part of their existence. So now here's dad, son gets out of the chair, pops his legs on, and is playing tag with Robin Williams on the grass. And dad is like, you could see the light bulb going, I, I, I can play catch with my son. I can play tag with my son. This is the coolest, coolest thing ever. Another aspect of that is Jake Frank is running along and he you know, sees this guy, Scott Stackman, a guy from New York. And we have had in the past a spot at the Ironman World Championship. And the only way you could get in the Ironman is you qualify or you potentially purchase a spot from CAF. For biggest fundraiser gets a spot. So that year, Scott had been the biggest fundraiser and he knew nothing about CAF. All he knew is he wanted to go to Ironman. So, but part of the deal was when you bought a spot, you had to come to our San Diego Triathlon Challenge. So now he's standing there when Robin Williams is presenting this set of legs to Jake Frank, who now is playing tag with Robin on the grass. And Jake runs over to Scott Stackman and takes Scott's hat off his head. And next thing you know, Scott is chasing Jake on the grass and thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I need to bring this charity to New York and we will do really well supporting this charity. So he reaches out to Virginia and says, Virginia Tinley, and says, hey, I'd like to do a gala in New York. And this is early on, you know, this is like 13, 14 years ago. And she goes, what do you like a luncheon? Uh, no, no, I've rented the Waldorf Astoria and I'm doing a gala. And he now has raised over $22 million for CAF through that, which started with him chasing a kid named Jake Frank on the grass at La Jolla Cove, trying to get his hat back. And you know, <laughs> that's what that led to. But to me, that's Rudy led to Jake, right? And Jake led to the next kid. And that's what it's, and every one of our kids understands that. There, and Rudy will tell you, yeah, the, the two gold, two silver, and a bronze are great, but his real medals are the kids who are, you know, right now, Golden Paralympics, Haven Shepherd, right? Uh, Haven Shepherd and so many of these other kids are there because of Rudy. They came to our swim clinics. And same with you know, our triathletes. And it's, that's my favorite part is just seeing our kids giving back to the next generation and and that's why I think our kids grow up so fast because they understand it's not just about them. It's about that next generation and seeing all these kids like Haven Shepherd, who's been with us since she's a little girl. Uh, she's you know, lost her, lost both legs. You know, that story where she was, right. you know, Haven yes. Shepherd lost both legs. So the, uh, the suicide that the parents, 
the birth parents were, were doing. And then she was adopted by family from Missouri. And now she's at the Paralympic Games, swimming, swimming at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. So that, that to me is, that's not where the journey starts or where it goes. Right. And it's also, it's that community as well, right? I mean, you're talking about Absolutely. the kids who become role models, but then they also have peers. Like, you know, you talk about Rudy where like Roderick Sewell and Rudy are our best buds. And they told me the story about Rudy basically getting Roderick into the pool because they're both double amputees. And Rudy said, hey, come on and swim. And Roderick's like, no, 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 no. I'm totally scared about this. And Rudy had, Roderick had, yeah, had his neck. arms around Rudy's neck and yep. like Rudy swam with him and he went, this is the coolest thing ever. And then, then these guys, you know, they have, they have peers, they have friends, they have a community. It continues to grow, but it also, it sort of grows in an importance that you never would have imagined. You never would have imagined that you'd be friends with Robin Williams, that at that Malibu race, yeah. that, that Rudy would have met David Duchovny and then he would right. have swam in David Duchovny's pool cool. yep. during COVID because he couldn't find couldn't another find pool to train him. Yeah. yeah, it comes from my pool. Yeah, yeah. That was that was really, really cool. That was, uh, and it was funny because Matt Futterman is a writer for New York Times and, and a friend and uh, did a book a run called Running to the Edge based on a, a film that he came to see the premiere of the film. I invited him to that. And he ended up, um, so he's a writer in New York Times and I invited him to, because Rudy and Roderick were living together in their training for Paralympics and living together in Brooklyn. How cool a story was that? You know, two guys going for the goal of going to the Olympics and no legs living in New York, one of the most inaccessible cities on the planet. So that was going actually, the, the funny part is Rudy and Roderick and Emily Gray living together in Colorado Springs Rudy's missing both legs above the knee. Roderick's moving, missing both legs above the knee. Emily's missing uh, one leg all the way up to the hip. So basically you had three athletes and one leg between the three of them living in a house together. And we were out there doing some video stuff and like Rudy's got his black lab and the, the dog is walking into the couch. And I'm like, Rudy, what's wrong with your dog? He goes, oh, he's missing an eye. I said, wait, wait, wait. You got three athletes, one leg and a blind dog. What is that a country song? What do you got going here? That's a sitcom. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> wow. So now you will do the event again in October, the, the triathlon. October 22nd, 23rd, 24th, Community Challenge, San Diego Triathlon Challenge, Amputee Run Clinic, Open Water Swim. It's, it's, a, it's a three ring circus and so much fun. And, and so that is going to happen in oh, yeah. COVID is not, is not an issue right now. Well, or yeah, you know I mean, right at this point, Based on if we were doing it today, we would be doing outdoor events. Outdoor events are okay. A million dollar challenge will be happening. That's sold out. I think it's 120 cyclists going from San Francisco to San Diego, 625 miles, 620 miles, uh, seven days. That's a five-star. That's a $12,500 uh, price tag. But each day you... You're so they have to lose. raise $12,500 yep. in order to get a ticket into ride, yeah. riding from San Francisco to San Diego. Yep. And each day you finish your ride and your masseuse is waiting for you. Your bags are in your five-star hotel room and your mechanic is tuning up your bike for the next day. So, and you're riding along with hand cycle athletes, with amputees, and you're really getting a sense, your community, you're, you're part of the community. And that's really a very special event. It's an amazing, and, and it's spectacular. It is, the California coast is just absolutely beautiful. 
if anybody wants to do it, there are a couple of hills along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not, people think, oh, you're starting San Francisco, go to San Diego, it's just all downhill. You should be fine. (laughs) You're starting up here, you're going down here. It's it's no big deal, just, yeah, take the break off and you'll be good. No. (laughs) Good good thought. No, it doesn't 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 really work. Yeah. And how many people do you expect and what kind of a, what kind of a fundraising uh, goal do you guys have for this year? Well, we normally raise 1.2, 1.3 through the bike ride and usually about 1.1, 1.2 through the triathlon and the community challenge. So that's, you know, that's, that'll be the goal to try to get in that ballpark. So we're, uh, you know, our team, our team did an amazing job during COVID. We didn't, nobody, we didn't lay off one person. Our team worked incredibly well remotely and did created uh, just great opportunities to engage with our athletes. Our team realized right away that, you know, as you know, if you're, it's one thing, if, if I can go out and just go for a run around the neighborhood, go for a bike ride. But if you're a wheelchair basketball player, a quad rugby player, or any type of, you know, sit volleyball player, Gyms are closed. Your your social group, your fitness partners are gone for you for a year. So our team worked with a company called Skills to create little workout kits to send to all the athletes. So they had stretch cords, they had little ladders, they had and created videos. How do you practice wheelchair basketball in your apartment? It's our team is spectacular, and that's it's one of the things we're proudest of is so many of our people have been with us forever. I mean, obviously myself and Jeffrey and Kaz have been there all that time. And Virginia has been there from basically the beginning. And uh, everybody, when people come and work with us, I think unless they go off and get, uh, have start a family or they move somewhere else, they don't, they don't leave because it's a pretty cool place, a pretty empowered place to be. Well, it's also going to be amazing to get the group together after such a long time and obviously the people who work there but then bringing all the athletes in and it it is it's a spectacle it's an event it's a it's a celebration i mean it's as you said it's a three-ring circus it's it's all of the above all the above yes Yes. it's 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 great and anyone that you want us to look you've mentioned a few athletes but as we get out Anyone that you want us to look forward to? You mentioned Rudy. You mentioned uh, Justin Fonksavon. Yeah, Justin. Trenton Merrill would be great. I think uh, Hunter Woodhall is ready to just kill it and break every record on the planet. Um, he's just in such a good place right now. He and Tara are just, you know, comes to their social media, they're following, they're sponsored by Champion. They're doing great stuff. And what's cool is when Hunter... <laughs> I had Hunter on my radio show a number of years ago, and he, he's number five in the country at quarter mile, number one in Utah, no scholarship offers, none, zero. Right. And so T62, right? So bilateral below the knee amputee. Yes. Yep. So anyways, uh, had him go to my buddy, Tracy Sundlin, who created Rock and Roll Marathon, has a track meet at the Armory in New York. And so uh, Hunter went back there. And they, New York Times did an article. How come this kid who's number five in a country quarter mile has not one scholarship offer? Next thing you know, he's setting up the hats in front of himself and picking Arkansas and becoming a Razorback because he had all these scholarship offers, which was awesome. And I had gone out to see Hunter when he was in Utah running in high school and he won the quarter. And then he was going to be the anchor for the four by one. 
and I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm down by the track and I see all this commotion in the infield and I go over to see what's going on. He lost a bolt in his leg and they were duct taping his leg on so that he could run the four by one. He could anchor the four by one and he wins, right? With duct tape, you know, of course. And I'm sure he's bringing duct tape with him to Tokyo because you never know. You got to have some duct tape because that's just the way it is. Solves everything. Well, that is, and, and that's the definition of an athlete, right? If you, if you're going to fix it, you're going to fix it with duct tape at some point. Absolutely. In your life. This is the yep. way it works. And Bob, thank you so much for joining us. This is a great way to lead us into the Paralympics, which will start on the 24th of August with the opening ceremonies. And we'll get right into right into all the competition, but just to watch these athletes and so amazing that challenge athletes has affected the trajectory of not only individual athletes, but a team as a whole, a country and, and really the world. So congratulations, Thank job you. well done. Obviously it's not done. You will continue to do it. Just get going, just getting started. And then we got winter coming up. We got your stuff. We got skiing coming up in Beijing. That's coming up around the corner. Watch Lyra Doderline. That's going to be, uh, if you don't know Lyra, she is uh, born in Russia. Uh, she had a, um, uh, parents were told because of her, her disability that they couldn't afford the medical treatment for her. So they should put her up for adoption. Adopted by a family from Arizona. First 14 years of her life, she's got leg braces, arm crutches. She's hauling these legs around. The doctors finally said to her, listen, you're putting a lot of stress on your shoulders. As you get older, those legs aren't getting any lighter. So you might want to think about having them amputated. And her adopted parents were like, we would never do that. And she was like, please. So they amputate her legs. She finds in Arizona, her sport, sled hockey, finds sled hockey in freaking Phoenix and becomes great. They move here to San Diego. Uh, we actually, I took her to the NHL network. And we surprised her on camera with her own sled hockey sled. She's now on the U.S. developmental team for women's sled hockey. She's 18 years old. She's also on our women's hand cycling team. And she was up in, up, uh, in, in Boise and up in the, up in the north, uh, Northwest doing cross-country skiing and Nordic skiing and biathlon. And she was invited with Oksana Masters, who's sort of her mentor, to, to go to Europe. And there's a good chance she's going to make the Paralympic team in, uh, in biathlon or in uh, Nordic for, um, for this January. So that's, that's, that's a tip for winter is Lyra Doderline. And then Desmond Jackson is going to be great in, uh, in, in, in Tokyo and track. And I can't wait to see how Haven Shepard does and obviously Rudy. So... It's so much good stuff. And Jamie Whitmore just got invited. You know, we didn't think she was going to be able to go. And now she's going. This is awesome. And it must be like watching your children to a certain extent, getting to watch these kids on TV. Well, especially Rudy, because basically he'll send me little notes. Hey, loser, I made the Paralympic team. You know, so <laughs> Thanks, Rudy. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, you guys helped him go to Rio, right, to get classified oh. so that he could actually make the team. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a long story. But yeah, the classification thing is like finding a unicorn. I can't figure that whole process out, but he couldn't get, he wasn't able to get, uh, they, he could have gone to Texas and get classified. And they told him that, oh no, all the spots are full. And 
Then he goes to Rio. They they invite him to Rio, the hotbed of COVID, to get to get uh, to, to to finally get classified. And he and Jamal Hill get classified down there. And the first thing that the classifier said to him in Rio is, "Why didn't you come visit us in Texas? We were sitting there with nothing to do for three days," <laughs> which I wasn't very happy about. So, anyways, but it's been a long journey. But the key for Rudy, this has all been fuel. All the doubters, all the, the people at USA Para Swimming who wouldn't let him swim at the at the para at the training center, who basically kept telling him you'll never make the team. He's just been using that as as fuel to go there and and and, and get his uh, get his medal on. You know, uh, he's he's going to do some good things there in Tokyo, and I can't wait to see it. Uh, that'll be awesome. Well, thanks again for everything you're doing for everybody. Thanks for, thanks for continuing to build the sport. I mean, I think that as a Paralympic athlete, we feel a sense of ownership in terms of, in terms of our sport, in terms of our community, but that's exactly what you're talking about as well. It's this sense of ownership and community and building it and growing it and telling people about it. So thank you and continue to do the job that you're doing. And thank you for joining me as well. Chris, thank you for, for one, being a legend for everything you've done because all the awareness you created for parasports and for, you know, in the disabled sports hall of fame, in the Paralympic hall of fame, come on now, you're the real deal. I just get to watch you. I get to watch real athletes and you're the real athlete. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate, I mean, I, I was helped. I got a, a hand up to get my first monoski. Uh, you know, my college team bought my first monoski and that, that started something that nobody had any, any idea where it would go, but I'm so glad for that start. And that's exactly what you're doing for people is giving them a start, giving them a hope and allowing them to dream, which is really the important part. So love it. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks a ton. And thank you to all of you for listening in. Again, the greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in. This will be a podcast. Apple, YouTube, uh, Spotify, all the regular suspects. So please follow us. Please like us. We'll continue to get great guests and we look forward to seeing you next time. So thanks a ton.